It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 129 for Monday, March 9th, 2009. Interferometry. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Fraser. It's great to have you with like full voice again. Yeah, it, it, there's a little touch of it that you could just barely hear, but uh, but other than that, yeah, no, the voice is back. Okay, so let's get on. When it comes to telescopes, bigger is better, but bigger is a lot more expensive, a lot more expensive. So to keep the cost reasonable while improving the sensitivity of their instruments, astronomers use an amazing technique called interferometry. Instead of building a single huge telescope, you can merge the light from several telescopes to act like a much larger telescope. It's a technique that has already revolutionized Earth-based observing, but just wait until it gets into space. Okay, Pamela, so when I wrote that intro, I kind of wanted to, like, not scare people. Like, you know, (laughs) don't let the title scare you. It is one of the coolest technologies that has been developed in kind of modern astronomy and I think has has led to to you know part of this golden age that we keep talking about in astronomy and as I said when do we get to the space missions oh so so <laughs> let's talk about first the dilemma of building a gigantic telescope and what are kind of the limits of of telescope technology right now Well, so you build giant telescopes for two basic reasons. One reason is you can get just so much more light. The more light you collect with your mirror, with your dish, with whatever light collecting surface you're using, the fainter an object you can look at because you're getting more photons from that faint distant object or even that faint nearby object. And cameras require a certain number of photons before they can go, ah, yes, I believe there is light here. Now, At the same time, you also want to have high-resolution images. You want to be able to make out the separations between close stars. You want to make out the details in galaxies. You want to be able to see all the bumps and wiggles in patterns of star formation regions, blobs of gas and dust. Both resolution and light-collecting area depend in different ways on the radius of the telescope. For the light-collecting area, it's simply how much light are you gathering. It's what is the area of your detector. But with resolution, all it cares about are how far apart are the two edges of your detector. How many wavelengths across is your detector? And what's cool is when you're figuring out the resolution of a detector, the detector doesn't actually care if the middle part is there or not. So you can get the exact same resolution with a giant donut-shaped mirror that's only maybe four inches wide in the donut part and 10 meters across from outer edge to outer edge as you'd get from having that entire solid mirror. But that donut, that annulus of mirror, is going to weigh a lot less, is going to cost a lot less to produce. And it doesn't even care if it's a contiguous donut. So I could actually, instead of having this 
ring of mirror, this ring of collecting surface, I could instead have maybe four different dishes at the north, south, east, and west equivalents of that giant donut. And as I break down to smaller and smaller areas, it gets cheaper and cheaper to build. Okay, so so give me an example then of something where you want a lot of photons. So a lot of photons is I'm trying to observe a galaxy at the very edge of the observable universe. This is a very faint object. It's very far away. We're just not getting a lot of light. So here we want to collect more and more and more light. Or I'm trying to observe a faint Kuiper belt object, one of these blobs of frozen ice that's out around the orbit of Pluto. Very small, very not necessarily reflective object, need to collect as much light as possible to try and see if it's there at all. Right. Okay. So so it's like every photon is precious, and if you can't collect the photons, you don't even know that the thing exists. Exactly. So, okay, and then what's the situation where high resolution is key? I'm looking at the star Betelgeuse. It's near enough by that if I use a high enough resolution detector, I can actually make out the disk of the star. I can look at it and go, oh, star spot. I can look at it and I can measure how big it is. I know the distance to Betelgeuse. And this allows me to actually calculate the physical size of the star. So so in this example, Betelgeuse is giving off plenty of photons, no more photons needed, but the key is that you need to be able to have your resolution to be able to see the disk of the, of the star, to be able to see the sunspots, to be able to, you know, or in the case, as you mentioned before, some kind of binary object where you're trying to sense the separation between between two stars. Okay. All right. And so then the traditional way is build a big telescope. But as we, we, we talked about this a bit in our Rise of the Super Telescopes episode, you know, prices rise exponentially as the size of the telescope increases, right? And, and not only that, but just the mechanical skill needed to get bigger than we're currently able to build, we're just not there yet. So some of the largest telescopes in the world right now have eight meter to 10 meter mirrors. And these giant mirrors are right at our limit to spin cast them, to transport them, to mount them so that gravity doesn't deform them. As we get to bigger and bigger mirrors, we're going to have to develop new technologies in using segmented mirrors in uh, building new mount systems and being able to handle all of this weight without gravity deforming the systems. So we're reaching the point where engineering problems, just as much as cost problems, start to make it prohibitive to build these giant telescopes. Right, and there are there are plans in the works for 30-meter telescopes, which will have all of these segments kind of lashed together to make one great big telescope. But the cost on, on that telescope, like the Magellan, is going to be enormous. So you're really kind of reaching the feasible limits. But that is like a big light bucket, right? You, you know, a big telescope like the Magellan is going to give you a 30-meter telescope to collect a whole lot of photons, and that's going to be you know, seeing these, these faint Kuiper belt objects in these galaxies at the edge of the, of the observable universe. So then, you know, you know, here comes the solution, interferometry. So what is interferometry then? So interferometry basically goes light is particles that also act like waves. And 
if you combine waves in a meaningful way, making sure that the peaks of one wave line up with the peaks of another wave, they interfere in a way that we call constructive interference. And in this way, you can collect a bunch of waves, line them up, and it's just as though you'd collected all the waves at the exact same time. Now, this sounds like a relatively simple idea. I go out, I collect my light, I somehow, maybe using fiber optics, maybe using mirrors, recombine this light, and everything works. Now, see, that's kind of funny because it kind of sounded like gibberish to me. So... Let me let me just kind of parse this because I you know I barely am, am wrapping my head around it. You're you're getting the light from one location and you're getting the light from another location, and you're you're putting that light together. Is that right? Yeah. And then and then you are you are you are sort of seeing how the waves. You know, as you said, they they construct or destruct one of those. I mean, I remember in physics we had the the situation where you have water waves, right? And you got two waves running into each other, and if the two peaks come together, then you get a double wave, and if the peak and the trough come together, then you get flat water. And I know light works the same way. So, so I guess I, I'm having trouble understanding how you can take light from two different positions and merge it together. And this is where it gets very tricky. We're really good as astronomers at doing this with radio waves. Uh, We know how to tune our receivers. We know how to detect the peaks and the troughs and the wave pattern very well. And with detectors like the Very Large Array, they know, okay, so the object is over in that part of the sky, so I tilt all my dishes towards that object. I know exactly where on the surface of the Earth all of my... Uh, telescopes are located very precisely. I can use geometry to figure out, well, this dish at this angle is this much closer to the object being observed. This other one is this much farther. And they use different travel paths. They use different computers to take the signal from each of these telescopes and combine it with delays that allow the radio light that is received by each of these dishes in a slightly different location to be mixed. So it is though the light was hitting each of the dishes that has left this, the object at the same time, hitting the telescope at the same time using artificial delays. These artificial delays allow the peaks to stay lined up with the peaks and the valleys to stay lined up with the valleys and to get constructive interference and to artificially create a giant telescope aperture that gives you these extremely high resolution images. So are the two telescopes recording the same photon? You know, like like can be a wave and you're saying you're trying to line up the them together. Is is that what's going on that you're kind of you know that the photon is spreading out over a, a large area and so it's hitting those the two telescopes and that's how you can you can kind of get at your 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 better resolution is that is that what's going on well we talk about light being what's called collimated this means the light that's coming off of an extremely distant star an extremely distant galaxy the light that's coming off of this source has the peaks and valleys within it lined up so that you get a coherent light beam. And so we're not detecting the exact same photon in two different dishes, but we're detecting photons that are acting together in a collimated fashion, such that if I don't have 
the moments at which I'm recording my data artificially lined up, then I'm looking at a packet of photons that were released at one time, a packet that was released at another time, and the peaks and values in these two different times might not be lined up. So I can get, like you pointed out, a trough lining up with a peak, which gives me no light at all. So it's because it's coherent light coming off of the source that acts in what we call a collimated fashion that we have all of these peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, lined up as the light travels through space. And so the timing is the, is the key. Yeah, we have to maintain right. that lined up, and we do it by shifting the, the signal from the telescopes until it's as though all the light was hitting the telescope at the same time. I guess I find that kind of, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, I, I find it, I guess, a little confusing as to why you say it's a collimated light. And I guess I find that part of just a little confusing. Um, okay, a lot confusing, which is, uh, you know, why is that important? I mean, I guess I understand, like, if you don't have the the timing, then it's kind of like you've got a telescope over here and a telescope over there. This one's taking images, that one's taking images, and you could merge the 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 images together. And this is what a lot of amateur astronomers do, right? They have they have they run video of of some object that they're trying to collect. They're just, they take frame after frame after frame after frame, and then they use image stacking software to kind of stack the images together to to get a longer you know, exposure, but also to be able to, to remove the, the bad frames. And so, but that's not what this is about, right? That's, that's, this is not taking two separate telescopes and, and merging the light together. And so you've got, you know, you know, a thousand photons on the right telescope and a thousand photons on the left telescope, and you put them together and you get a little bit of a better image. This is different, Right. And, I think that's important. And this is getting at increasing the resolution of the image. Right, right. And, 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 it's, and as you said, you know, it, it's key to, you know, the fact that the photons are coming at the same, were, were, were emitted at the same time and are, I mean, is connected the way to put it? No. Connected's not quite the way to put it. it. It's a matter of, well, first of all, you do have the object varying. So in theory, I could take light from, the, from two different telescope dishes and combine it so that I have the peak of one wave combined with the peak of the next wave. And in theory, I'll still get everything interfering in a way that allows me to get nice, good, sharp image. But I'm observing the object in two different periods of time. So I want to get a snapshot of the object in the now, such that all of the light that I'm receiving traces the same behavior in the object. Okay. There's also a matter of the resolution is directly related to how wide is my aperture? How wide is my collecting surface? And in this case, that width is a reflection of how many wavelengths fits across the telescope. If I have a 10-meter optical telescope, it's going to have absolutely amazing resolution because optical light is extremely small. It's hundreds of nanometers. These, these are smaller than anything that you, you can really imagine because it's smaller than what you can see with your eye. 
So we have something that's several hundred nanometers peak to peak, whereas with radio wavelengths, I can have a 10 meter dish and very, very poor resolution. An entire galaxy is nothing more than one pixel of, well, this is bright, this is dark. No, you can't see any details. All you know is there happens to be an object that emits radio over there somewhere. And this is because the radio wavelengths are meters and meters in length. So I, I'm trying to compare something that's hundreds of nanometers to something that's tens of meters in size. This is such a huge difference, and it leads to a huge difference in the resolution. Right. So I think that's that's key, though, right, is that the this is very tricky with optical telescopes to to line up, as we said, to line up the wavelengths between two optical telescopes. You're having to make sure that your your wavelengths that are nanometers are across are are perfectly lined up and that requires timing at, at an insanely complicated level while you can imagine you know these radio wavelengths which can be meters across are are you know you can kind of get it all you know miss a little bit and it's no it's no big deal so it's rate to, to use this technique radio is it radio the, the larger wavelengths is where it really it really shines right and and conveniently it's the radio wavelengths where we need this technology the most because a single dish has such terrible terrible imaging resolution it's only by starting to combine dishes that are actually spread across half the globe that we're able to start getting really good resolutions that that's one of the amazing things about this is with radio telescopes we're able to very precisely record incoming radio light from distant objects in New Mexico, in Massachusetts, in Spain, using dishes spread across the entire part of the planet that's capable of looking at some distant object at the same time. We record the signal onto hard drives, onto magnetic tape. We record the timing of the observations. And then we artificially, in a computer, combine all of this light in a, a process that involves this neat thing called fringe finding where you carefully adjust the timing offsets between the data and we artificially combine everything to create this artificially large telescope. Now with optical light we don't have the ability to record the incoming light in the same way where we're able to keep track of every peak and valley, every change in, in incoming photon. And it's because of this difference where we end up resorting to things like using fiber optics where we physically delay the light travel time to the detector and physically combine the light so that it has the correct delays from one telescope to another. Well, let's talk a bit about then sort of what the setup of one of these interferometers looks like. There's a couple operating now. And so start with the visible light telescopes, sort of lay it out for us. What does this, this kind of look like? Well, visible light is still very, very experimental. There aren't many systems in the world that are getting actively used for things that you and I would be able to see easily with our own light. The most famous of these systems is a very large telescope interferometer down in Chile where we have the large 8.2-meter telescopes in the Atacama Desert that have the ability, using fiber optics, to combine their light and get extremely high resolutions along what we call the baselines, the lines connecting one mirror's center to another mirror's center. 
So when you combine only two telescopes, you get extremely high resolution only along the direction in the image that has from one edge of one telescope to the other edge of the other telescope. And then you'll get single-dish resolution 90 degrees to that because you don't have that added size to the telescope mirror and that direction where the telescopes aren't spread out from one another. Right. It's like imagine a big, long, skinny telescope. Right. That's, you know, it's eight meters high and how far apart are they? Uh, These are actually about 200 meters apart. Right. Okay. So so it's eight meters high and 200 meters wide. It's a very long, skinny mirror. But But as you said, they can go the other dimension too, right? Right. So here they have multiple telescopes and they also have additional little one meter telescopes that they can move around the facility and add in additional ways to end up getting as many as six different dishes on at the same time, I believe. So by combining different mirrors in different ways, all of this working in the optical, well, here I have to say it's kind of a cheat to say the optical. It's the optical if you're a snake. This is near infrared. infrared. It's near infrared observing. There are systems that are working in what we do see as visible light, but these are mostly systems that it's it's still experimental. We're still working on developing this technology. Right. The future has yet to be written. Right. So there, there's experiments yeah. in Sydney. There's a, experiments in Hawaii, there's experiments all over the world trying to make this working visible light. But if you're a snake, it's visible because we do have this working in the infrared. Right. And so infrared and down, submillimeter into the radio, microwaves. I mean, you've got the ability to to merge these these telescopes together. And, And as you mentioned, the most amazing example of this is the fact that one whole half of the Earth can be called upon as a great big radio telescope is as if if what you need is a telescope the size of the planet there's one available to you right and and so with the radio we're already doing this and we already have plans or at least different people put together different plans no one's working on building one of these right now that i know of to extend the baseline by putting dishes in orbit where instead of being confined to the diameter of the planet earth we're instead confined to where in the solar system if we put our telescopes. Right. We could put a one radio telescope on one side of the Earth's orbit and another on the other side. and Or stick one out on the moon. There's lots of different ways that we can start combining things. Right. And, and the resolution goes up. And then there are, uh, I guess, plans in the works to develop space telescopes that would use interferometry. I guess our our favorite canceled space program, that was with a big plan, right? Yeah. With the terrestrial planet finder. And this was a system that was looking to combine the light from three different telescopes to a, a central observing hub. And it's a complicated system, but in space, it's you can use lasers to very precisely locate the spacecraft. You can get them spread out to much larger distances. And again, this was a system that was looking to physically combine the light along these different path lengths using physical delays. We know how to do this. It's not easy to do. It's not cheap to do. And this is why NASA hasn't quite gotten around to actually doing it yet. Right. And, And I think with the Terrestrial Planet Finder, this is one of those situations where the resolution 
is what you want, right? You want to be able to resolve a planet orbiting a star where it's a separation issue, right? I mean, obviously you want some photons, but you really want to be able to just know, acknowledge its existence there. And that's not simple. And so here, yeah, we have to be able to resolve the planet separate from the star. We have to be able to block out the light from the star. It starts to become increasingly more and more difficult system. Right. Right. Now, when I first heard of the concept of interferometry, I got really excited. I was like, oh, I wonder if you could take, you know, if, if kind of like SETI at home, amateur astronomers around the world could, could set up their telescopes, point it at some object that they've all been instructed to point it at, and then, you know, gather light for whatever period of time and then submit their, you know, their images to some central clearinghouse that could then kind of merge it all together and, and do interferometry in the visible spectrum. And I, uh, I, emailed, I, I emailed this to a couple of scientists and, and I got some like polite laughter. <laughs> so so, uh, so what, where was I, my thinking incorrect? Well, like I was saying earlier with the optical light, the problem is you can't just artificially recombine it later because you've been able to record with your CCD detector the overtime variations in the light, the peaks and the troughs, quite so conveniently. With light, you're collecting photon after photon after photon and building an image with long integration times. You don't do that in the radio. The technology is just completely different. On top of that, there's also all of the timing issues, all of the positional issues, and this means that you can't even really do what you're, suge- you're suggesting. If we replaced all of the 12-inch amateur telescopes in people's backyards with instead uh, satellite dishes taken from local cable television networks, the issue with interferometry is you have to know exactly where you're located on the surface of the planet, and you have to have atomic clock precision in the timing of your observations. And even with that, combining the data can be uh, difficult, to say the least. The, the process of fringe finding, the process of artificially lining up the radio data to get it to coherently combine, to get the peaks to line up with the peaks, to enhance your signal, this is a complicated process where as you bring in the light, from each different dish, if you're using, for instance, very long baseline interferometry, you have to worry about things like, oh, the Russian's telescope was off by three seconds. You have to worry about, oh, uh, Spain was behind by half a second. And all of these small differences in timing have to be accounted for, and they end up affecting your, your data as your telescope slews across the sky in slightly different ways. And it's just, it's hard to combine all this data. And as you bring in more and more and more telescopes, all these small timing issues become more and more things you have to worry about. And it just becomes an untractable puzzle fitting nightmare that really no one wants to solve. Right. So it would work if we gave everybody an atomic clock and connected their telescopes by fiber optics and measured their position on the planet to an insane accuracy and, and, and developed entirely new technologies and new kinds of computers. And we were able to wire the fiber optics in just the right way that we were able to exactly compensate for, dis, 
for differences from multiple objects with multiple differences yeah. in travel time delays. Right. It, it's just far too complicated of a problem. But radio dishes, you know, it's uh, it would be feasible. It, it's all about the computer power there. Right, right. But But even then, you'd, you'd have to give everyone on the planet an atomic clock and uh, right. military-grade GPS. Well, all in the name of science. I'm up for it. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, I think that this is going to be one of those technologies that that over the next couple of years they're going to keep on developing the techniques and they are going to, you know, they're going to they're going to crack it. And I think that you're going to really see some amazing research from ground-based telescopes and especially the uh, the space-based observatories that are that are hooked up in these these baseline arrays it's going to be amazing so interferometry it's a, it's a complicated word but it's a very exciting technology so uh, so don't worry about it Keep, read the stories when you hear about some interferometer that that comes online could be uh, the next great uh, technological advance all right Pamela well thanks a lot and we'll talk to you at the uh, I guess in the next question show sounds great Fraser I'll talk to you later okay bye. Bye-bye. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Cool. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.